Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Namaste, my friends, and welcome back to the Yoga Revealed podcast. This is Alec Michelle Rubin, and I hope your day is going beautifully. Today, we have a Colorado community leader to present to you, Lisa Wimberger, the founder of Neurosculpting. We are so excited to share this meditation method with you, helping us learn how to rewrite old stories that have created possible limitations and expectations for how we seem to maybe have to live. Here's to the age of now, embracing new. When you can name something, observe something, you are literally putting activity into that space, that third eye space, that prefrontal dorsal medial space, which means you are quieting the ego attachment to that story. You are quieting a fight or flight response, which is something that we feel in the story. So witness mode is profound. Some of us accidentally get there, but in neurosculpting, we teach people to go there. Enjoy this episode of the Yoga Revealed podcast. Open your mind, open your ears, and let the heart soak this wisdom up. Namaste, my friends, and welcome back to the Yoga Revealed podcast. This is Alec, and I hope you're having an amazing day wherever you are. Today, it is such a pleasure to introduce Lisa Wimberger, the founder of the Neurosculpting Institute. And I'm sure we're going to dive into what neurosculpting is and what you've created here, Lisa. But before we do that, A, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to meet with us and to share with us your journey that has brought you to sitting here in this amazing space here in Denver, Colorado. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Yeah. So before we you know, get too deep into neurosculpting, it's always great for us to, to hear your story. For those who maybe haven't heard of who you are or neurosculpting in general or neuroscience in general, mm-hmm. um, before we do all that, can, can you share with us your, I'm very like mindful when I say the word, your story. Right. Because I know that what we're going to talk about is all about stories. Yes. And how we rewrite stories. Yeah. That we tell ourselves. But share with us your story. I'm familiar to some extent just from your website and reading about you. Mm-hmm. Let's dive in. Yeah. All right. Well, it's a crazy one. Um, 
so I first learned self-hypnosis when I was 12. My, my brother was learning it in college, and he came home, and he taught his little sister uh, these techniques, and it just completely rang true for me. So I, I started my meditation practice at 12, and it was pretty regimented. It was every day. I was disciplined. I, I loved it. It was kind of like my lifeline. Um, little did I know it was preparing me to be able to deal with things later in life. I just was having an amazing time diving into what I felt was states of bliss or um, total relaxation. Uh, then I was 15. On my birthday, I got hit by lightning in the base of the spine, um, as did the boy I was with, and all of our friends had witnessed it because we were with a group of people. And I didn't quite know that that moment changed my life. It wasn't till years later that I realized everything had changed. But, um, but that was the summer I started having my first series of what I called blackouts. Uh, I thought I was fainting. I thought I had fainting spells. Some people would witness them. Uh, more often than not, they happened when I was alone. And, and I used to recover pretty quickly from them, but then as the years progressed, I couldn't recover from them. So I'd be, um, I'd have what I called a fainting spell. I'd be on the floor. I'd wake up on the floor in the bathroom, and um, I'd be in a puddle. I'd be, I couldn't move. I'd be nauseous. Sometimes I couldn't hold my urine or my bowels. I just was completely unable to move, and um, and in excruciating pain, and not really knowing what that was. Well these progressed in severity um, until I quite fortuitously had one in front of a doctor when I was 30. So I'd been having them for 15 years at this point, like a few times a year, thinking I was fainting again. Um, Then in a doctor's office, I had an episode and I told him, I feel faint, I'm going to pass out. And he I woke up later to that same feeling in a puddle. My body was in pain. I was going to throw up. I was going to, you know, lose my urine, and um, and I opened my eyes and he's hovering over me with a needle of atropine, which is resuscitative. They inject you when your heart stops with atropine, so it's kind of like that Pulp Fiction kind of scene. And he's got the needle in his hand and he's panicked. And I opened my eyes and he said you flatlined. You had a seizure. You flatlined. I was about to inject you. I couldn't get your heart started and you weren't breathing. And I thought, what is he talking about? I just fainted. He said, no, you did not faint. You had a grand mal tonic seizure. Have you had these before? And I said, well, I've been waking up in these puddles feeling like this since I was about 16. They started getting bad when I was 16. So about almost 15 years. And he said, you have a seizure condition and it didn't ever occur to me that I had that um, because no one ever really could diagnose it he diagnosed it um, sent me to the hospital I was not epileptic I didn't have epileptic brain patterns so they said I'm I'm vasovagal which means my vagus nerve which is a cranial nerve that goes from the brain stem through the entire length of the spinal cord and it innervates all of the organs They said you're hypersensitive in that nerve, and usually if you're stressed, that nerve will trigger uh, a very profound freeze response um, as a reaction to stress. 
and freeze is much more primitive than fight or flee. Mm. So it would basically drop the heart rate so fast that the heart stops and the brain shuts down, the, the reticular activating system in the brain that keeps you conscious. That all just cuts off communication to the cortex. So you're basically unconscious and your heart stops. And I said, well, what am I supposed to do about this? He said, nothing. There's no meds for it. You have to manage your stress. And so at this point, this is, this is where the story just all converges. I had been doing self-hypnosis since I was 12. Meanwhile, I had done a lot of like my own forms of meditation when I was in my teen years. But then when I was in my um, early 20s, I studied Ascension, which is basically TM meditation. Mm. And I studied that with the Shia monks for four years. And then I went to the Berkeley Psychic Curriculum here in Denver, and I did that for four years. I have so much formal meditation and metaphysical and energetic training that none of this made sense. Why would I be stressed? Like, what do you mean I'm stressed? I've been med- I'm meditating with monks for four years. How could I be stressed? This doesn't make any sense. But the fact that it didn't make any sense was the biggest revelation I had. Mm because that's what told me something was missing. Something is clearly missing if a lifelong meditator cannot heal unresolved stress, because that's what meditation is supposed to do. So I went, huh, either I'm a really slow learner, which is possible, I'm totally clueless, which is also possible at times, or something's missing from my meditation practice that could change all of this. And so that's the route I opted for. Mm. And I knew I needed to study my vagus nerve. I knew I needed to understand what these seizure, how, what triggers the seizures, what they do to the body and how to recuperate because they were getting worse and worse and worse. I got my diagnosis when I was 30, but I still had the seizures for most of my 30s and they were getting worse to the point where the last one I had I had to be resuscitated three separate times. I could not maintain the breathing once it was back. And so I knew it needed to end because otherwise I'd be in big trouble. So in studying the cranial nerve, I went down the road of neuroscience and I discovered, oh my God, all these missing pieces. I mean, neuroscience literally gave me a language and a framework that I could plug meditation into that was far more strategic than just a generic kind of meditation. So the, the diagnosis when I was 30 changed everything because it forced me to find the missing pieces. The missing pieces were absolutely science, absolutely neuroscience, and everything it taught me about our ability to retrain autonomic responses through neuroplasticity, our ability to heal patterns of emotional, neurological uh, repetition. Mm. It it taught me how to heal um, in an application-based way, whereas my meditation taught me how to heal in a spiritual way. And yes, we're spirit, but we also have bodies. And I spent most of my life trying to understand language of spirit, and I feel like I talk with spirit. But I didn't spend any of my life trying to understand the secret language of the body. And my spirit has to live in this thing. So I better better learn what's going on. And that was the union. It it created such an amazing um, depth of healing. 
it created the whole neurosculpting practice because I backwards engineered my meditation practice and I changed it to, to be strategic and neuroplastically a form of entrainment. Um, and it deepened my spiritual self. I never in a million years thought neuroscience would get me even more spiritual. I felt quite spiritual already, but it did. And it started aligning my body and what I, what my spirit wanted me to do. It had, they had never been aligned before. Mm. So, Hey, what is neuroscience? Yeah. Well, well, you know, neuroscience is like just, it's the study of the brain, but what it gave me was insights into neuroplasticity. Which is? And neuroplasticity is our ability to change the structure and function of the brain quite literally in each and every moment. So the brain, the, the brain is plastic. It's not elastic. Elastic means we can stretch it, but it goes back. Huh. The brain never, ever, ever looks tomorrow like it did yesterday it's always in a state of change and adaptation now that could be very subtle but it's never going back to what it was so therefore it's not elastic it's moldable every physical thing we do creates a pattern if we repeat it it creates uh a reinforced pattern. Every emotional feeling we have has a choreography in the neurology, and if we repeat that, it grows in efficiency and in um, accessibility. Every word and use of our language does the same thing. Every single thing about us is neuroplastic, otherwise we couldn't learn, grow, and adapt. So neuroplasticity was what um, neuroscience is now focusing on as something it understands more and more. We're still far from understanding how to self-direct it, but we understand a, a lot already that can heal people. How you direct your thoughts, your physical patterns, your food patterns, and your emotional patterns will all literally change the structure and function of your brain, which then orchestrates you differently. It's, it's magic. Mm. So... Perhaps in, in retrospect, going back, what was one of the first just huge stories that you were observant of that you were just telling yourself over and over that was a deep ingrained pattern? And when you begin to develop this uh, practice of neural sculpting, which is an amazing word. It's really Thanks. cool. <laughs> I meditated and I came into meditation. <laughs> yeah, I figured. It's really cool. Neural sculpting. Yeah. What, what was that story? Like, Do you, yeah. do you remember that one of those first... Ooh, big stories. Well, I remember one of the first stories long before I created neurosculpting, which I had to move through later in life. So I had this story. Um, I grew up, I was very tiny as a child, very tiny. I was probably six to seven inches shorter than all of my friends, and I was super, super skinny. So I looked years younger. And I remember that always coming up as an issue for me, you know, as issue of embarrassment, mm -hmm. um, you know, going to the amusement park at 13, being dropped off, feeling 
like a middle school girl <laughs> and all my friends and I are out with the middle school boys and we are waiting in line at the roller coaster and we get there and I'm not allowed on because I don't meet the height requirements so they tell me in front of of course the boy I have a crush on that I could go on the kitty ride Aww. that kind of stuff story of I'm not tall enough I'm not big enough I'm not enough whatever that is didn't know I had that story um, I couldn't name it quite like that until my early 20s where um, where I had a partner who cheated on me with someone who was quite opposite me she was about six foot one uh, very curvy big woman and I remember trying to figure out why I still couldn't get over it after I thought I had processed it. And then I heard myself say to a friend, yeah, she's everything I'm not. She looks like a real woman. Mm. That's when the story came out and I went, oh my God, that's not even about right now. That's about me growing up little. My story of I'm not big enough, I'm not good enough. That was a story that was probably the first real story in quotes that hit me over the head and said, this is relative mm. and unnecessary. Of course, I didn't know then how to move through it, but that was my first understanding of the stories that experience reinforces for us that gets under our, under our skin and, mm. and affects the way we perceive the mm. world. But the story, the breakthrough story that was for me was um, I knew I had something in me that I could not name an unnameable story that caused me to freeze with stress. It caused the seizures. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know what? I don't even know what that story is. But I know enough about neuroplasticity to know I don't have to know the story. I only have to know how to entrain differently. I can create a new story and entrain to it so repetitively that it becomes a viable contender. So what I did was I meditated a lot. Uh, after my worst, worst seizures, I said, I'm going to get rid of this. And I meditated with um, what I called a rehearsal script. And this is where neurosculpting came from. The script I was rehearsing in my meditative trances was when a seizure wave was about to hit, it's called a halo, hmm. you got about a second, maybe. When the wave hit, I would, in a meditation, I would evoke the feeling of a wave, and then I would practice being a warrior, fighting it, kicking it, biting it, punching it, screaming at it, the opposite of freeze. Uh -huh. And I rehearsed like I was in a play that story for about a year. Uh -huh. um, not every day, but in, in most of my meditations. So that a halo came, a wave came in real life, all of a sudden I was about to seize and something snapped. And instead I started punching the windows in the dashboard and screaming and kicking. And the fight script I had been rehearsing was activated. <laughs> and I didn't seize. Oh my God. And I shook pretty wildly for about eight hours uncontrollably. Because that was really... So I had the shakes for about eight hours. And um, and then I felt like something had shifted. Like I had entrained enough to this new pattern 
that it was now embedded. Hmm. And then uh, I think a halo came once a little while after that, and I didn't even have to fight. It just dissipated like mist, and I never had one again. And that's, since then. Since then. And that's when I said, what I was doing this past year of practicing this script worked. Let me name the parts and pieces. Because what I was doing was I was taking an induc- a little bit of an induction from hypnosis and putting myself in a primed state. I was taking my information from neuroscience and I was... Um, using my focused attention and my language very specifically to cross the midline of my brain to activate both um, language centers on both sides of the brain because I knew that would boost plasticity. I was forcing myself into a prefrontal state throughout the meditation so I wouldn't slip into um, a trauma limbic response. I was using what neuroscience gave me to create a safe and effective framework and it worked. And that's when I said oh, this is, this is something different than what I grew up with. This is something that really worked for me. It cleared the pattern by creating a new one so richly that that's the default now. Mm. And, um, and that was in 2007. Wow. And that's when I took it out to the world. So you said a few times to move through the story. And for me, that I, I almost relate that to, in some regard, the five stages of grief. Like, mm. are there stages that we move through in stories that are pretty general or well-rounded that maybe all of us will go through when we're telling ourselves a story and then we're rewriting the pattern and rewriting the story. Does that make sense? It does. And that's a really interesting question. I'm going to need to write about that. Um, But in general, we don't have to relive the story to let it go. So we don't technically have to re-experience it to let it go. But I think what's more important is we have to have a willingness to let it go. To change. To change. If that's not there, and there's many reasons why that's not there. Fear of change, even if the change is positive, is a, is a fight or flight trigger, literally. So if you say there's going to be a reward if you change, if that reward is not big enough, this pain that's familiar is more comforting because it's unknown. That reward is unknown. Unknown equals scary to my brain, which is a prediction machine, Mm. wants to know exactly what's coming and how to navigate it. So willingness doesn't mean you don't want, uh, an unwillingness doesn't mean you don't want to as a desire. It means you're going to revert back to a contracted state no matter what. So some people even do want to change, but they don't have the tools to move through the fear that is evoked by the potential of change. So they revert back. So then they feel like failures. They feel like, I want to change. It's not working. Well, that's probably because no one's taught you that the crippling fear that paralyzes you when you are about to have something wonderful happen is normal for some of us, and we have tools to move you through it. So it's less about moving through the details of the story and more about moving through the contraction and the fear that prevents you from dropping the story or softening it or memorializing it or putting it on a shelf. Hmm. Hmm. Profound. Hmm. Wow. So 
only recently I went through this experience at Burning Man, and uh, I had this opportunity to. I was observing a story, but it was just a moment where it was like so real. Mm. There was no other route than acceptance. Where in the past, it was like, oh, look at all these other routes that I can be elusive with myself and my own illusion and tell mm. myself this or that because I'm not ready to accept this or that in, in whatever, you know, the situation that's arising. In that regard, when something is just like right in front of your face, what, what are the, like, I just feel like there's always so many options that we can take. Like being able to move down the path of, yeah, change but observing the story? Right. Observing the story is the first huge step because, I mean, all meditation, well, not all, most meditation tries to get us into witness mode. And witness mode is the ability to observe the story. And um, so if you can even know that you're in a story, or that's observation. That's the first step. Mm. Rather than the story takes you and it feels like that's all of you that's not observing we're in the driver's seat right when you say oh wow look at how i'm acting right now that's observation that's critical that is a third person witnessing and the um monks studied uh years ago when they went into third person witnessing, they were shown on fMRIs, functional magnetic resonance imaging, to have activity, dominant activity in the dorsal medial prefrontal cortex, which is a third eye for the metaphysicians. Okay, that's where their dominant activity was. Wow. So when you can name something, observe something, you are literally putting activity into that space, that third eye space, that prefrontal dorsal medial space, which means you are quieting the ego attachment to that story. You are quieting a fight or flight response, which is something that we feel in the story. So witness mode is profound. Some of us accidentally get there, but in neurosculpting, we teach people to go there. What are some of the, like, how do you teach someone to be more mindful? How do you teach someone to integrate observation mode? Yeah. The first thing we do is we teach them how to um, self-direct their limbic response, their, their, their dominant activity in the middle of the brain that causes contraction and fear. We can modulate that very easily and on nothing happens until we do that there is no witness mode until the middle of the brain quiets because the middle of the brain takes resources away from dorsal medial prefrontal cortex Hmm. they are like a seesaw two sides of a seesaw when one's up the other's down so when we're contracted around life um, we're inhibiting that third eye space Literally, neurologically. Contracted around life. When we're contracted around life and limbic, meaning we're not in rest and digest and expansive consciousness. We're not in ease. Not in ease. We are literally inhibiting blood, oxygen, and glucose flow in the front of the brain, which means observation is almost impossible. So in order to teach someone how to observe and be mindful in, in the institute here we teach them first 
how do you downregulate the middle of your brain? Because that will naturally release those resources back to the front because those two parts of the brain are on a seesaw relationship. So step one is every tool we can give someone to downregulate their contracted self. Some of that is shaking, some of that is breathing, some of that is the focused attention we do in the induction of a meditation process, things you can think about that will actually downregulate it. We give them internal tools to do that. Then it's not scary to observe anymore. It's almost natural because we actually have resources now in the front of the brain that can evaluate. That's what the front of the brain does. It evaluates. So you at Burning Man witnessing a story and not being sucked into it so much that you couldn't figure out who you were probably was uh, part and parcel because you had flow, blood flow in the prefrontal cortex. Mm. If you didn't, that story would have taken you. Mm. You would have spun out. Reacted. Yeah. So how does this relate to yoga? Well, yoga, as we all know, is more than um, a series of asanas. Yoga is the art of using the body to heal itself and to be uh, be in a mindful container. And this is the aspect of yoga that is all of that. This is the, the mental entrainment. This is learning how to navigate your brain which will navigate your body so you know there are poses in yoga that are designed to release the psoas muscles which are the major stress muscles in the body but guess what you try to release those and your brain doesn't have a story of what safety feels like they're not going to release or they're going to unleash the deep-seated fear underneath in a way that you don't know how to come back from that So in yoga, you have to have a mindful component to balance what moves out of your body when you go through those poses. And that's why yoga is so beautiful because it has that, well, traditional yoga has that mindfulness component. But if that mindfulness component is not there, I I know there are certain, um, I would call them more fast food yoga joints, I would say, that don't necessarily focus on that. You put someone in a hip release, that has no idea how to bring their mind and presence to that posture and suddenly they're hysterical crying they have no idea why they Mm. never go back to a yoga class again and they contract even more because they think something crazy just happened to them so navigating the mind and the nervous system is the it is yoga and and so this is how it it companions with the physical practice Mm. so I know that one of my best friends, Kiefer Josephs, who's one of your co-facilitators, I believe, mm-hmm. at an upcoming event in New Mexico. New Mexico. Yes. Yeah. Um, in in teaching, because I know that you hold the space of you know what we're talking about, the yes. very psychological part of this. Yes. And my brother Kiefer, he's holding the asana part- yes. portion of your of your 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 training. How 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 is Kiefer weaving in neurosculpting? to the asanas. Yes. Um, so when we created Neurosculpting Yoga, I created, I co-created it with Michelle Lee Weldon, who mm-hmm. was an advanced trainer, and Kiefer is one of our advanced facilitators in that. Um, we wanted to take any yoga form 
and frame the entire class as though the entire class was a five-step neurosculpting meditation with movement. So we stripped down, uh, we didn't change sequences necessarily, but we stripped down the construction of the class. We made the first part of the class match the induction of the neurosculpting process. We made the movement part of the class um, use the verbiage that we use in the middle of the meditations where people are linking left and right hemispheres and using that to identify somatic contraction and release. So we were using the poses as containers and then we were asking people to navigate their brains specifically in this cross the midline way during the poses and then in Shavasana, we were using the closing of the neurosculpting five-step process. So we overlaid the five-step process onto a yoga class so that we didn't have to create a new form, new mm. asanas. That's not what we were interested in. We were interested in taking the gift of yoga, whether it's vinyasa or hatha or um, whatever form, the gifts of that and amplifying them with a class structure. and. That was the initial shift to make it neurosculpting yoga, mm -hmm. but um, really what we do with Kiefer is even one step further because he is constantly in his um, presentation of it, he is causing others to have observation moments more and more and more. Mm. There's an art to the way he facilitates. So we've got the five-step process as the overarching framework for the class, but then Kiefer facilitates from a neurosculpting space, and his facilitation moves people out of that fight or flight if they're getting lost in it, like in a hip release, and moves them back into their witness mode because he knows exactly how to uh, construct his language. Neurosculpting is very language-specific because in the middle of the process, we can actually cross the midline quite easily with language and with symbology, and we make use of that. It's, you can affect neurology very profoundly with those two things, mm. and Kiefer's really great at that. So the neurosculpting yoga could still be a vinyasa class right. or an any class, but it's the facilitator changing the structure of the class that makes it neurosculpting yoga, and um, People release a lot in those classes. Can you briefly go through the five stages, yeah. please? Mm -hmm. So the five steps are step one, we quiet that contracted fight-or-flight response. And we do that by focusing on things the fight-or-flight response needs to know are okay. I'm in a safe environment. My environment is predictable. My breath is breathing itself. I'm on solid ground. I have access to food and water. My basic needs are met. Okay, that's step one. Focus on how your needs are met in your limbic center, in the center of the brain, will start to quiet. Step two, amplify the prefrontal cortex, anchor in there, and neuroscience tells us how to do that. Think of interesting, curious, novel thoughts. What's the most um, interesting shape you can make with your mind's eye? Can you spell your name backwards? Can you bring your awareness to the inside of your right nostril? Anything that makes your brain say, hmm, that's interesting. That's prefrontal. Mm. So in steps one and two, we're actually changing the um, blood oxygen and glucose dynamic in the brain, mm. quieting the middle, activating the front. That's called the induction. Mm. From there, 
we know from neuroscience we are highly entrainable. We're, we've just amplified our neuroplasticity while mitigating fear, which means we're ready to learn and remember something more deeply with a guarantee that we're not going to trigger it through a fear charge. This is a powerful place. So step three is an opportunity to revisit an old story or tell a brand new one in such a way that we recruit as much of the brain as possible investing in that story. If we evoke an old story like I did, I evoked my seizure halo and I practiced a different response to it, that's one form of entrainment. You can pull up the old story and shave it down differently. Or you can forget that entirely and start to cultivate a brand new story that never even existed. And in step three, the storytelling process, we use our language to help people go from left to right to left to right across the midline to hit those language centers so that we are getting a bilateral engagement, which will also boost the plasticity. Step four, if we perceive a shift of any kind, a perceptual shift or a somatics shift, we ask the person to remember that by using their non-dominant hand to either tap that part of their body or maybe press thumb to fingertips or make some kind of hand gesture because if they do that at the same time they are having a better perception, those uh, somatic motions and perceptions will link neurologically, meaning if you do that a few times, then during the middle of your day, if your story is triggered, but you can tap your fingers or put your hand on your body, you're going to also evoke a memory of that meditation. So it's a somatic awareness in step four. And in step five, we give it a linguistic memory. I ask people to name their meditation. And then we teach people how to use the tapping and the words throughout their day um, to evoke gentle exercise of that, those perceptions they created so that by the time they get to their meditation tomorrow, it hasn't been long forgotten. Mm. And that's how you exercise anything. Mm. Repetition. Amazing. Repetition. That's all it is. Yes. So I have my own experience of what the word somatic means. Mm -hmm. Visceral? Yes. Yeah. Cool. So we have people imagine um, the perception you're having right now. Go scan your body. What's happening? Is your body contracted? If so, let's breathe through it and soften it and remember that. Is your body softened? Well, that's how it's relating to this perception. Let's link that. So the body keep. Uh, there's a, a great book called The Body Keeps the Score. I think it's by Bessel van der Kolk, who's amazing trauma work with uh, mindfulness-based meditation. The body keeps the score. And if we ignore the body in a meditation, we're missing half the equation. What's the other half? The mind. <laughs> That's for me. It's, yeah. For me, it's those two things. It's mind and body. Uh -huh. And spirit is the language that sutures them together. Hmm. And, um, and we ignore the body all the time oh, yeah. in meditation. Oh, yeah. we're, we're told we're more than a body. And yeah, we are. But we also have one. <laughs> And if I'm more than a body before and after this body, great. But if I have one, I want the big size of my spirit to be able to seat comfortably in it. And I better know how this body is talking to the orchestrator. Mm. So for me, it's body and mind as, as two sides of a coin. So what is the mind? I don't know if I have a good <laughs> answer for that. Because the mind lives in the gut, it lives in the heart, it lives in the space around us, a field we emanate, it lives in our brain, it lives in 
I maybe even the parts of us before we have a body and after mm. we have a body. Mind mm. is a tricky, tricky thing. I remember there was one person we had interviewed on the podcast. I, I'm slipping who who said this, but uh, I had asked them, "What is the mind?" And they said, "I love their answer." And she said, "Mind is bundle of thought." Nice. And you know our yoga practice and their sitting meditation is just pulling out one thread mm. at a time and finding clarity on mm-hmm. it, and then. As that point, you know, as I'm thinking, I'm like, well, if I have a big bundle of woven together thoughts, and eventually I'm pulling, what's at the middle of it? Right. What's at the center of it? <laughs> Gotta keep these, pulling it out. These threads could take you on a very long journey. <laughs> Beyond this yeah. lifetime. Yep, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So how long has um, Neurosculpting Institute been doing what you're doing? Well, I've been teaching this since 2007, before I had a nice fancy word for it um Hmm. and I first started teaching it to officers so I would go into police agencies and teach this I still do uh and then in about 2011 I started bringing it outside of the agencies and outside of my private clients into like public workshops and that's when the name came because I was calling it meditation and people were saying this is not that what is this and I said oh I guess I better come up with a name So I meditated and the name came. Uh, And then I opened the institute in 2012 because my students wanted more and I was peddling my wares, so to speak, at any yoga studio that would let me use their room. So I would, you know, I couldn't have regular classes because it was, I was an incoming workshop in these places. So I eventually needed a a space. So Mm -hmm. I opened in 2012. Wow. When you were saying that you, um, trained with officers when you were talking someone came to my mind was like well I've been in a car crash and in that moment time stopped it didn't but like everything went slow motion and the only word going through my head was oh shit yeah and I just watched it happen yeah you can bend time when you're present (laughs) and when you're in an accident like that nothing else exists your checkbook balance, your the fact that you left the refrigerator door open, none of that exists. And so when you are present, truly present, as Einstein has proven, time is relative. It does not function the same way when we are present than when we are not present. When we're not present, time flies. And when we're present, we can bend time. And things move in slow motion and you witness it and you're like whoa so I yearn for that amount of presence in my life on a day to day basis and it is possible it's possible and it's a lot of practice and I can't say it's easy to be that present because we have a lot we live in a world that demands we're not right a world that demands a multitasking awareness Um, but it is a self-created presence Um, the fact that you were in an accident helps created in the moment situationally Um, but I was able to do be in that space when my mother was passing and what I noticed was um, the last three weeks of her life everything was a surreal whirlwind and I wasn't present I was um, trying to hold on to the past before it slipped through my fingers like sand. I was trying to project into the future of what life would be like without her. And all of a sudden, 
an hour went by and I missed her in bed sitting right in front of me. And I went, oh, wait, I'm missing the last breaths of, of this woman's life. I've only got, we only have like a couple days. So I stopped. I used my neurosculpting tools and I stopped. And every single time my thoughts wandered to something other than what am I seeing when I look at her? What am I hearing when she breathes? I moved back to her as my focal point. And those days were the longest days of my life. Not even, not just because they were traumatic, but because I was choosing to squeeze every single observation out so that I could prolong her death. And it literally felt like I have a series of remembered moments from the last few days of her life that are more in quantity than the moments I could recollect through years of being a child mm. because I forced myself to be present. Mm. If the motivation is big enough, you can force the presence and you can bend time. And if the motivation is not big enough, then you need a practice. And that practice is, that's what we do. Mm. Wow. Sounds like an amazing modality for anyone who could be new to meditation or anyone who has had years of experience with meditation. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's for everybody. It's for those who are experienced and those who have none at all. Have you had, like, who have your greatest influences been? Oh, wow. Well, the Ashaya monks definitely changed my life. What's um, their meditation? It's very very med- transcendental meditation. It's TM based, but it was a derivation, and it was called Ascension. Uh-huh. Um, they gave me tastes of what presence felt like, so they were big motivators for me. Um, my daughter was the biggest one. She was the biggest one because she was very little when these seizures got to their worst. And all I thought was, oh shit, I can't die, she's three. And she was with me, we were eating at Whole Foods in a food court, she was three. And um, I had, we were eating lunch and I had one. And I could feel the halo, this was before I had entrained to my new story, I felt the halo and I went, oh no. And last thing I remember, um, I felt like I was going to seize. I, I remember grabbing her hand and running into the bathroom and looking in the mirror of the bathroom and noticing because I had, what triggered it was I bit into a chicken bone and I had this halo. So I grabbed her, ran into the bathroom. I'm looking in the mirror. I'm tasting the blood go down my throat and I'm looking, my tooth is loose and I'm like, oh my God, I got to go to the dentist. My daughter's right there. I'm looking at her in the periphery. And that's what I viscerally remember. But none of that happened. What happened was I bit into a chicken bone and I had a seizure. I never even got up and I crashed onto the table and then I flipped over backwards on the ground and flatlined. And the param- I woke up to the paramedics, so I was out for a minute, a, a while, at least five, maybe even ten minutes. Paramedics came. I realize the reality I think I'm in, which is I think I'm in the bathroom looking at my loose tooth and holding my daughter's hand. None of that's real. 
okay, so, and this was familiar to me, the, the reality in my head during a seizure is not at all what's happening, and then you realize it when it starts to pixelate and go away, and you're like, oh, crap, I'm not doing that. I'm here peeing myself on the ground. And so the paramedics were there, and my, I, I didn't know where my daughter was, and she ran over. Fortunately, someone else was upstairs with us, and they saw, and they were monitoring her. And she came over, and she put her hand on my chest, and she said, Mommy, did you die? And I went, oh, shit. Uh, how am I supposed to have <laughs> these, sto- these conversations with her? And so I had to teach her how to dial 911 when she was three. I had to teach her what to look for, what to do if this happened again. That's, that was the biggest motivation that was the biggest like she's the one she's the one who taught me get your shit together and fix this and do it now so I had a lot of great teachers who all influenced me Mm. but none of them lit the fire Mm. that she did because she asked me that question this little tiny three-year-old asked me that question what do you have to offer to those who aspire to you know, incorporate a daily meditation practice. You know how many people over the last. I've only been in a mindfulness practice for five years, and for sure counting. Um, and how many people have said, "Oh, that's something that I need to do." Yeah. You know, that's something that right. I, I really want to do. Right. I would say um, five minutes is better than no minutes. Don't take on this idea that you're supposed to sit in a beautiful posture in the perfect environment for an hour and that you're supposed to be serene and come out feeling like you've just been on a vacation. That's a lot of expectation. And if that's the expectation and it doesn't work, then we stop the practice Mm -hmm. because we feel like we failed. Mm -hmm. So I kind of remove the expectation. Do you have five minutes to breathe and count your in and out breath and make them equal? Do you have five minutes to shake? Do you have five minutes to go through a mini induction that you've learned in neurosculpting? Do you have 15 minutes? Twice a week, great. Put it on your calendar, set your alarm, and do do what works for your schedule. And then when you start to see that that's easy repetition, increase it because we set ourselves up for failure, especially learning meditation. We have all these ideas, I'm gonna set my altar, I'm gonna make my room beautiful, I'm gonna light the incense, I'm gonna have nice and quiet. And you go to sit on your cushion and two minutes in, they start um, hanging pictures and banging nails in the wall in the apartment next door to you and you're like, you know, my meditation is ruined. Well, no, you had two minutes. Mm-hmm. Appreciate that and, and know that Two minutes is better than no minutes. Cool. Thank you. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. It sounds like just an amazing opportunity for anyone who, who is able to step into neurosculpting. How many, how many people do you feel like you've been able to offer this practice to? Well, let's see. I've taught 1,700 officers over the last 10 years. We've had thousands of students come through the institute in person and online. We have a huge online platform. Yes. And we have 47 certified trainers across the country. Wow. And, um, yeah, so thousands. Cool. Can you tell us about the online training that's coming up yeah. mid-October? Yeah. So we have, this is very exciting, we took our biggest, deepest immersion which is called Warrior One. It's about 16 hours worth of content that I teach through video and audio 
guided meditations, and um, and we made it into an online self-paced course for people who are. I have students. I ha in my last class, I had students from Africa and the United Arab Emirates, and they're waking up at four in the morning, and this is not sustainable. So now we have a self-paced learning platform. Take it as you go. Take it as you go. So. On October 19th, we are running a six-week self-paced um, course that will feature this online immersion. You can register for it. You can literally do it at your own pace, but, but the six-week window is six weeks of conference calls with me and the group so that you have peers to discuss homework with and bounce ideas off of. We're going to have a private Facebook group for people to ask daily questions. Um, we have lots and lots of resources. You can take it in the group format like that over six weeks, or you can simply just sign up for the Warrior Online Immersion, not be part of the group, and just really take it at your own pace completely and not do the conference calls mm. and, the, and those things. So people have many different options. It's on our learning store on the website. And it's also, if you want the group experience, I would suggest looking at the calendar and clicking on the write-up on October 19th and looking at it and saying, hmm, what could I lose by doing this at my own pace, in my own home, in my pajamas, in my bed? <laughs> really, I, we couldn't have made it any easier. Yes, that's awesome. Yeah. Cool. Well, in ending the podcast, we always like to have just one golden nugget of wisdom that you could offer to listeners, practitioners, teachers, humans? Yes. Uh, my golden nugget is that no matter what real circumstances we're experiencing, no matter what real trauma we're experiencing, um, there are practices to help us relate differently to that in the aftermath so that we don't have to stay feeling broken. The brain will stay feeling that way if it's a strong enough pattern, but we can override that by creating new ones, and we can get rid of this I'm broken thing and move into, wow, I have some choice. Mm. No matter what happened to me in the past, I have choice. Mm. Thank you for that reminder. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank Thanks you. for asking. Lisa, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Namaste. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the Yoga Revealed podcast. If you feel called to integrate yourself into a program of the NeuroSculpting Method, you can find out about upcoming trainings at Lisa's website, NeuroSculptingInstitute.com. They have a six-week online program beginning October 19th. Let's dive in and continue to make a splash in the world just by doing our practice. Please check out yogarevealed.com for more opportunities to dive deeper into your own personal practice. We've got amazing things in store for you online at our website right now. Until next time, namaste my friends. Hold up, what was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.